on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur, and I'm not sure if he has the confidence to call his son Junior. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? <laughs> I never even considered it. <laughs> really? No, yeah, like just the idea of being like, hey, this is Ben Jr. <laughs> I don't know. It just never even, never even was a consideration in my head. <laughs> After what George Foreman did, I think I just took it out of the... Uh, realm of possibility i don't think i ever could have convinced my wife that that was going to happen either you know benny Horowitz weird... yeah Le- lebron james said he was he was mad he called him son Bronny. but yeah, I, I think i may cast a smaller shadow than lebron <laughs> in literal and metaphorical ways but yeah i couldn't do that what would you name your kid oh, my i mean come on that this is fa- what barack did you say barack <laughs> Though Giannis naming his son Liam was like not even on the top 10 names I would have picked for an an Antetokounmpo. So you never know. You never know where life takes you, I guess. That's true, man. (laughs) This is the most comfortable seat I've ever sat in to do a tune-up. Yeah, I'm usually in some weird spot. I'm usually on a floor trying to get Wi-Fi in some weird place. I'm feeling pretty... (laughs) Just like comfy today, you know. Is that you got me in a nice, it's in cool, your casual mood? Yeah, you know? look at this. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah I'm feeling good today. What, what do you need? What do we got to talk <laughs> oh, about? Let's talk quality. about everything. Same Come quality. on. Hey, hey, we could talk about the Bundesliga if you want to. Bunch of Americans over the weekend uh, making their presence felt over there. But Benny, I saw you know just perusing through social media the other night. Apparently, in as part of a new Ken Griffey thing on MLB Network, he talked about his hatred for the Yankees. And yeah. it's stemming from the days of his father playing and a little systemic racism going on up in the Bronx, courtesy of George Steinbrenner and who else? The Yankee security. The other thing was, I came up to visit my dad and it was just me and him and got to the ballpark early. I'm sitting in a dugout and uh, security guard comes over and says, hey, George doesn't want anybody in the dugout. And I was like, what? He, my son. So he goes, all right, hey, go in my locker. He goes, but before you go, look at third base. It's Craig Nettle's son taking ground balls at third base. And at that time, my dad was, you know, 38 years old. He's like, I ain't fighting this no more. I got somebody a little younger and a little bit better. You know, there's certain things that a dad drills into you as a kid that just sticks with you. And that was one of them, I mean. What, to beat the Yankees? Yeah. So, Benny, I sent you this clip last night. What did you make of it? He always kind of made it known that the Yankees weren't exactly his favorite team. But now that we know why, it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, you hear this story. So, what, he was, uh, when you know, his dad was a Yankee for five seasons. It's not like he was a short-term Yankee. And, you know, Griffey's a little kid. He's sitting on the bench. and. And a staffer comes up and tells him to that he's got to leave because no one's allowed. And then you see uh, Craig Nettle's kid taking uh, taking grounders at third base. So whatever his dad told him after that situation, I'm not sure what news he shared about the Steinbrenners. It couldn't have been too good. Made Ken have a lifelong hatred for the Yankees yeah. that you can't you can't really knock for no. something like that. I, you know, there's a you know, my mother's dentist kicked me out of his office when I was like seven for fucking around too much. I never forgave that guy. I still don't. Yeah. Fuck that guy. 
you know? So when you're a kid and you start to get these hard lines in your head, especially someone like George who had a, an array of things that happened after that could, you know, put you in question culturally. Um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I'm glad, you know, obviously I'm a Yankees fan, but, you know, I'm 39 years old. I was, I was 10 when, when the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. came <laughs> out. You know, like he was, he was the star of right. baseball, and, and you couldn't be a baseball fan at that time without loving the kid, you know, like you had to. So, you know, when I look back in this story uh, as a revisionist, I do enjoy the whole narrative because that team in 95 was great. Mm -hmm. Everybody forgets it. Tino Martinez, Edgar Martinez, the kid, Jay Buhner, young pimple-faced (laughs) A-Rod. You had uh, Randy Johnson, Tim Belcher throwing. Like, those were good teams. They beat the Yankees in the ALDS. And I remember being heartbroken and being like, fuck, this team's a juggernaut. Like, I might not get through this for a while. So I'm glad that Griffey, at least for one season, got a little bit of his taste of vengeance and got to put the Yankees down. But I only like it because now I can see it on the long form and I know what happened (laughs) shortly after to Ken Griffey's career and the Yankees. So that's the only reason I'm all right with it. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. The one thing I think Ken should be careful about, and we talked about this in the last episode, is the summer of 98 – is is being talked about a lot these days and i don't think he wants to bring himself up too much in that conversation 56 dingers full year of health someone's going on with the kid that year well i just think from the whole yankee fan perspective like we're both yankee fans here but yankee fans carry this sort of well, if you think I'm racist, what about Red Sox fans? And and like to, to take that that approach yeah. after you know, kind of the uh, checkered history of the Steinbrenners is yeah. a is an interesting route to take. But the other thing, I'm happy that we never got to see. Do you remember that era where like George was getting older and people were like, "Who's gonna own the Yankees next?" And they yeah. were like, "How about Donald Trump?" Right. And I'm oh, so yeah, that happy that we didn't get a Donald Trump ownership of the Yankees. Cool. And also, I'm happy that we didn't get like super MAGA George Steinbrenner. Because yeah. Oh, yeah, in, like, he would have been. In like 2014, sure. it was all like, oh, oh no. thank you, George. What a great guy, yada, yada, yada. He's around a couple years later. It gets a little bit more dicey. He maybe makes a few more guest appearances on Fox News. You're right. That would have caused a cultural conflict for me. You might have been looking at a a Mets fan, a sad, struggling <laughs> Mets fan right now. I 100 percent would have jumped to the Brewers while I was out there, like I did with everything else. So I mean, there is a cultural <laughs> distinction, like, and and that's where things do need to be separate. Like Boston is a far more racist town than New York. You know, you don't have to go there right. for like 30 minutes without finding that out. But that doesn't mean the ownership group of a team is less or more culpable than the ownership group of another team. Like the Boston thing is it's fans, it's it's culture. Um, But that had nothing to do at the time with the ownership and stuff. Well, maybe it does because (laughs) as you're seeing in other leagues uh, right now, you know, when ownership or commissioners actually decide to make a hard line in the stand civically for something, it does hold weight. So you know, yeah, there's some culpability there, and it's not like New York is totally out of it. 
I mean, Ken Griffey Jr. also went to a team that was owned by Marge Schott, who was a public racist, and he went there with no problem. So, you know, to say that a bunch of these billionaire owners aren't probably xenophobes or racists and have a bunch of opinions on their own behind their dollars, I'm sure they fucking do. The political divide in sports that has really elevated itself in the last few years is an unbelievable conversation that I love having. And and we're going to get to Jay Busby of Yahoo Sports in a little bit. Wrote a great column about the events over the weekend in Talladega, Alabama. Um, And if you haven't heard about that, Bubba Wallace, the only black driver in NASCAR, uh, made a stance for Black Lives Matter, urged NASCAR to disassociate itself with the confederate flag and over the weekend he found a noose in his pit area uh the fbi is now looking into it crazy events just crazy again so we'll get into all that in a little bit but right now let's get into this day in music history benny what do you got well we're gonna go with some chubby checker today let's do it and on this day in 1970 he was leaving from a two-week residency up in Ontario, Canada. And when he was crossing the border into the States, Chubby Checker and three others were arrested in Niagara Falls, a border I know very well, (laughs) after uh, marijuana and unidentified drug capsules were found in Checker's car. Now, this is like whatever kind of story, right? Like a lot of artists through the 70s, 60s, 80s got caught with speed or weed or coke like somewhere uh people actually cared in those days so they were arrested they were all let off with fines nothing big happened after it the interesting thing about this to me was in 71 yeah there was a little known record chubby checker at his own insistence recorded a psychedelic album filled with music he felt was current and it was only released in europe originally it was named checkered uh and it was renamed over the years and uh, different re-releases as the new revelation, the other side of Chubby Checker. It was uh, all written by him and produced by uh, the longtime Jimi Hendrix producer, Ed Chaplin. The studio musicians have never been announced. No one knows who was on the record. And it subsequently flopped. So I do find this interesting connection between Chubby Checker getting caught with unidentified drug capsules in 1970 and then deciding to make his psychedelic album next. I'm wondering now what was in those capsules. Could have been a quaalude, could have been something a little more psychedelic, but Chubby was on a journey at that time, clearly, and he went for his his psych record after he got caught. But it does prove my point that I do have a running theory that the ebbs and flows of rock and roll and types of music are a little bit based on the drugs people are doing. And I feel like everybody's into uppers these days, and that's why a guy like me can't get a lot of jobs, you know, because everyone wants disco balls and dancing and high energy. They're trying to get their thing out that way. In about five years, when everyone's just getting flat high again, big boy's going to be rolling it. (laughs) There's so much to unpack. (laughs) So... You're not going to be involved in the reboot when ABBA tries to make their grand world tour again. That's not what Benny Horowitz. No, no, they were the Coke run. They were (laughs) they were part of the Coke run. That's not my kind of drugs, man. I'm looking to chill out at the end of the night. You know, not not keep it going. 
Well, speaking of chilling out, on this day in 1971, <laughs> Joni Mitchell released her fourth studio album, Blue. We talked about this one a lot during our bracket tournament during right. March. And, you know, I just think that, like I said, time and time again, Joni Mitchell, incredibly important for women getting their voice out there and, uh, you know, maybe paving paradise and putting up a few parking lots. <laughs> she, uh... Yeah, I've been watching those Laurel Canyon documentaries. Mm. Her name has been popping up recently, you know. She definitely was one of those really, really wine-in-the-sand kind of folk performers that a lot of people took a lot from, especially lyrically, you know. Yeah. Got to give her some love. I After our tournament, both Joni Mitchell and Carol King, you know, went up a notch. I love it. Book. I swayed you a little bit. Yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> you got me. You got me. You can't. Listen, you can't knock a classic. If something has been selling millions of copies over years and years and years and you think it's just flat bad, it's yeah. your own fault. It's like when, you know, you know, I moved into my, my own place with friends when I was 17 and I'd been cycling through apartments and houses with, you know, dirty punk rockers and friends for years. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing I really learned is that if say like the sink is always dirty or there's something going on in every single apartment you have the same thing is happening it's probably you doing it and it's not everybody else yeah so that's where i think people need to recognize that you know you don't know everything and if you hate something everybody else loves like yeah you're probably wrong hmm. all right next headline benny you know, the NBA is trying to come back, and, you know, as for as unlikely as it may seem, with Orange County, Florida, kind of raising in the COVID every single day, uh, Disney World has come under fire and about what they're going to do. But more so than that, the players are starting to speak out, be like, this may or may not be a good idea. So yeah. not until today did we get one guy be like, you know what, I'm out. And that's when Davis Bertans was like, you know what? My contract's up this year. I'm going to sit out of these Disney games and, and yeah. the playoffs and stuff like that. Benny, do you think this is going to be something that we're going to see more and more of? Yeah, and we've already seen it. I know it was kind of a, you know, a quiet one, but when um, Bogdanovich decided to get season-ending surgery, Utah's right in the middle of that Western Conference playoff thick. He's a big part of it. And now with him and now with a bunch of other major players on playoff teams – saying that they're questionable about what they would have to do, especially I think guys like Davis Bertans, who's like, why am I even in this anyway? The Wizards are not winning this. Yeah. I certainly should not be risking this when I could go be playing in Spain next year for, you know, $12 million a year. And this is uh, who needs this parody. Yeah. So I think uh, until a much more solid plan where they're telling people what's going to happen with testing, What's going to be happening if you test positive? What exactly is happening with your family? What exactly is happening with the staff who are going in and out of this place? It's almost as if the idea, it's like Marxist communism. It was like the idea was good when people read it and you start combing through the details yeah. and everyone's like, eh, like maybe this isn't worth it and maybe it's not a great idea. So I think it's going to put a dent in it. Um, I know they have contingency plans in place with extra players and extra roster spots to fill in the blanks. But um, I think at the very least, if this does magically go through to the end, 
it's going to be looked at e- even more so as an asterisk season. I think it's going to be special because if a guy like LeBron or Kawhi can just like power themselves through this thing, or excuse me, Giannis, thank you. Uh, if they power themselves through this thing and can actually do it, I mean, it's going to be unique to watch and special and uh, and cool. But in the long run of everything, once you start pulling back, who wasn't there, who was there, and the nature of it all, you know. I think at this point, it, we're going to be lucky to see the end of it. And if we do, it's going to be a bit of a misnomer in basketball history. Yeah, I mean, I get more and more suspicious that this is actually going to happen by the day. I mean, you can't have, I mean, the numbers from yesterday, there were 4,000 new cases. New York down to about 1% positive tests. So the the second wave is I know it's something that a lot of people have like mocked for a long time, but it seems like a thing that's actually going to happen. And especially in Florida and Disney in particular, the employees that are working at the hotel or the cast members, they can come in and out of the bubble. So yeah. how secure is this bubble? Plus they're adding guests there. And I like, and I know that we've had this conversation around and around again, but for people that championships matter to their legacy and their place in the game's history and i'm talking like your upper tier guys like like your right. lebrons and Kawhis and Giannis, is like sure. like you said this is everything but if you're like a guy who's you know maybe just trying to make a few bucks at the end of his career you may be like okay i'm done or if you're someone that has a contract that could expire and you're not sure where that next paycheck's coming from that's that's a heck of a risk why bother? Yeah, exactly. Point. I mean, and it's just seeing it logistically again, like I'm no epidemiologist and I'm not going to sit in a podcast and claim <laughs> I am, but all these countries that are restarting sports have are doing it very with, minor, yeah. what's that? Have, have very low levels. Very of, low, yeah. like almost minimal to gone uh, rates, much higher testing, everything that, you know, medical people said we should be doing from the start. And because we're America, we didn't do it. Uh, and you're seeing the fallout of that. So, so even when you're seeing these other leagues and other countries who brought their numbers down to zero, still even having problems getting it to go through, it's a hard sell. It's really hard to see, you know, especially down there where people just couldn't manage to put away their fucking board shorts for another month and just, uh, you know, take care of themselves. So if there's anyone I don't trust either, it's that that mania down there <laughs> benny i'll say this and i've said this before to you this whole thing is combining two of my maybe top five favorite things in the world disney world and basketball i would still leave everything behind for three months to do this i don't <laughs> care if the rates of covid are going up i would still be stupid enough to go in, in that bubble and you know maybe try to advance the career a little bit imagine how good that would be for the podcast i'm just inside the oh. bubble yeah, if you can get tune up in the bubble, I'm paying for your fucking plane ticket down there. You're not going to get my ass in the bubble, but if you want to go and keep zooming me from inside of it, good, good. You're young. You'll be fine. You're young, no kids. You're fine. You're a soldier. Get out there. I got too much to lose. <laughs> All right, let's switch gears here. After the break, Jay Busby, Yahoo Sports. Will join us to talk about NASCAR's defining weekend and the Bubba Wallace incident at Talladega. Stay tuned. Eddie, I'm a big fan of your work, man. It's it's a pleasure oh, yeah? to talk to you. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Nice to talk to you. Yeah. 
What was the first <laughs> Gaslight Anthem song that you've heard? Man, I don't know. You know, I was I I, I think I jumped on with uh, the '59 sound and then worked my way backwards. So yeah, I was all over it. But uh, I, you know, it's one of those things where. I, I got to be honest, I haven't listened in a while, but every time it comes up on iTunes, I'm like, holy shit, why am I not listening to these guys more? So, <laughs> Well, that's good. That means it'll just stick around. That's my yeah. only hope is that the music you make actually just sticks around. It's Somebody that smart time. told me that. They said that good songs last. So You, you know make- what? That, that's so true. It just it doesn't sound like of an era. It's just rock and roll, man. It, it's, and that's going to that's gonna be forever. So Appreciate that. I miss the old masquerade. Yeah. That you was uh, that was a fun place to play, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the best. And then when you're done playing, you get to take a haunted tour <laughs> of a venue. So, Danny, I don't know if you know this place, yeah, but the yeah. original Masquerade mm-hmm. in Atlanta my, is... My brother lived right on Piedmont Park for like seven years. Oh, my years, goodness. Yeah. That place was scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was a great venue, really. Like, great shows. They feed you. Good vibe. No problems that way. But you start taking a tour of that building. Woo! That is a, a scary place. And then a new one is scary for a totally different reason. Yeah. There, there's so many little venues in Atlanta that have those little nooks and crannies that you'd you, you be walking down a hall and you're like, how the hell did I get here? What is this place here? Yeah, we had uh, Alex from Gaslight Anthem had a door slam behind him walking around <laughs> looking for a ghost at the masquerade. So oh, That's awesome. Yeah, so it's real to us. That's great. <laughs> I could listen to uh, band stories on tour all day. I mean, I, I talk to athletes all the time, so I've got all of those stories down. But man, I, I just turn into a fanboy when I listen to uh, listen to musicians and their band stories. It's great. Uh, it's the complete reverse for me. Like I'm, you know, I know all the secrets about music. I know yeah. why why people do what they do, how they remember it. You know, I listen to a record and I hear a weird bass tone, and then all of a sudden the record sucks. <laughs> but I have no idea what ath- like how athletes do what they do. I yeah. have no concept of how you can make your body do that and have the willpower to do it over and over again. Yeah, so exactly. actually, and and I think you know, especially someone like in the MLB, you know, or or the NBA, any of those high schedule um, leagues, I think they're the one of the closest things to people who know what it's like to be on tour. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, you're on the road nonstop. Yeah, and that strange camaraderie between, you know, people you might not have even known that well before, but now you're in these battle situations together, and you better figure it out. Yeah, stuck yeah. on the bus. He is a columnist for Yahoo, author of the book Earnhardt Nation, Jay Busby. So I imagine this past weekend was uh was something else for you. It was, it was kind of a bit of a surreal experience, right? Yeah, I mean, I love Talladega. I love the racetrack. I love everything about it. I love the experience of going to to the Talladega race. And I didn't get to go this weekend. I mean, it, it sucks because they're only allowing a very few number of NASCAR riders in there. And uh, the ones that are not in there, they're they're sticking us out in a pen, kind of out in the yard, basically. And, right. and you, can, you can look at the back of the track. I d- I've done that already at Darlington this year. So there wasn't much point in me going. And then, of course – all the news in the in the sports world breaks right there this weekend, and, and you see NASCAR's history just kind of burst back onto the scene uh, for a whole lot of people who are not familiar with NASCAR. It was their first introduction or their reintroduction to a sport that's that's it's got checkered would be the nicest way to put its racist history. Yeah. Now it's it's I, I think people pretty much know the story of what's happening with with Bubba Wallace and what the the league did. I'm wondering just for you as like a, 
you know, born and raised Southerner, like when through your life were you able to like personally reconcile with the history of the South, the aspects of it you would like to get rid of? And what are the aspects to you that are the important ones to still hold on to in that regard? I mean, I still struggle with it to this day. You know, I was raised in the South, uh, you know, raised in Atlanta, raised in Richmond, Virginia, going back and forth. I was the biggest Dukes of Hazard fan that you will ever find. And, right. and it's, it's, you know, like David Foster Wallace has this idea, this, this parallel about fish and water and being around it, around water so much that you don't even know what it was. And that for me was what it was like with the Confederate flag. You know, I saw it everywhere. I saw it on the, the hood of the, or the, the roof of the General Lee. You know, I saw it in, in neighbors' garages everywhere. And it was, it wasn't until much, much later that I started realizing, you know what? It's not just it's not just like you know Braves Falcons Confederate flag. It's it's more it's it's very very different from being just another team that we root for that kind of thing. And so it took a long time. I mean, I've got I've got a according to my family legend, I've got Confederate veterans in my ancestry. According to my my family legend, one of my ancestors was Stonewall Jackson's chaplain. I've not wow. been able to verify that, but that's a story that that my family tells. But you you come to realize that something that means something to you, you know, that something that is your heritage, if it's, if it's hateful to somebody else, you need to examine it yourself. And that's, that's what I've done over the last, you know, decade to two decades of my life. And, and I mean, like I say, it's still an ongoing process. And I think it is, it's going to be for anybody that was, was raised in the South in the last uh, half, uh, half century. Now, I mean, for someone like you, who, who's taken the time to you know, not only educate yourself about the history, but just educate yourself in general and and go and expose yourself to other cultures and other life. Like, is what NASCAR is throwing down right now, is it even possible? And how can they reconcile with the sort of hardcore fan base that, that's clearly never going to let that go? That's a hell of a question, man. And, and And I don't know. I mean, I wish I could be optimistic and say, yeah, you know what? Five years from now, NASCAR is going to be like, uh, you know, well, actually, I was going to give an example, but I can't think of a league right now. Maybe baseball is the right. league, political league right now where, where you don't have that, that politics woven into the, into the blood of it. Football pre-Colin Kaepernick, uh, the NBA pre-LeBron uh, James, pre-I can't breathe. They were, they were a less political league. But NASCAR has always had this racial element to it because they've held so strongly – to the Confederate flag. I mean, it was it was a part of race programs. It was on cars. It's it's still in infields now, and it's not a political thing, but it is it 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 has to do with belief in a way that you don't see in other sports. And there are people that are going to hold on to it. And and the issue with NASCAR is the reason why NASCAR is so appealing to a lot of people is because of that kind of rebellious outlaw spirit. Wow. That that spirit, like you know. I'm going to work for, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to punch a clock. I'm going to work for the man five days a week. And then on the weekends, I'm going down to the short track. I'm going out racing. I'm going to floor it. I'm not, no one can tell me what to do. So when you've got NASCAR telling you what to do, right. I mean, their first instinct is like, F you, man, I'm flying the flag twice as high now. Right. Rebels. Yeah. <laughs> Rebe rebellious. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Rebels yeah. if you were. <laughs> yeah. It's all just part of it. Right. So this progressive movement in NASCAR has kind of been, at least with NASCAR brass, has been gradually happening for a little bit. What was kind of like the start of this and where do you see it going from here? 
Uh, they have, well, it started, you know, kind of tentatively uh, back about five years ago. There's always been a, a sort of slow, quiet move to get the Confederate flag out of NASCAR. And uh, up until very recently, and by very recently, I mean the last few weeks, you could not get hardly any drivers to speak on it. You ask them about it and they or their reps would be like, ah, you know what, I don't want to talk about that because they knew that there was a segment of their fans that wouldn't want to hear it. About the only people that would talk about it were, were the Earnhardts, Dale Sr., Dale Jr. Both went on record being critical of the Confederate flag. But why? Because, you know, they were the Earnhardts. They could do it. They, they knew that right. whatever fans that they, that they lost were going to be a, a minuscule part. But other drivers didn't have that luxury. Five years ago, when there were the, the shootings in Charleston, uh, yep. NASCAR tried to ban uh, the Confederate would try to make sure that the, or ask, I should say, ask fans, not ban, ask fans not to bring the, the, the flag to Darlington, which is a track in South Carolina. In South fans responded by bringing more millions of flags. I mean, it yeah. was just, it was, it was, it was terrible. Um, what really precipitated this event was uh, back in April, one of the best known dra- drivers in NASCAR, a guy named Kyle Larson, was goofing around and driving uh, uh, iRacing. You know, he's he doing online racing like we were all, all right. locked down with the quarantine. And he drops the N-word right in the middle of uh, right. when he's just racing. And it, it went out everywhere. Everyone yeah. heard it. And yeah. the fact that that he could so casually use that, it just played into every terrible stereotype. And that was kind of what got the ball rolling. And Pulled then, the veil off a little. Exactly. And then Bubba Wallace, who is the, the, the lone black driver at the Cup Series level, he started speaking out about the flag. He was empowered by the fact uh, that the, the the Black Lives Movement and the protests of the last few weeks had grown. And so he, he grew empowered enough to speak on it. And that's what led us to today. Hmm. So- it's funny you mentioned Talladega because I remember um, driving through Alabama and driving past Talladega. I forget which cities I was going to. We weren't expecting it. And I'm like, wow, the fuck is there all this traffic, you know? <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, what is this? And there's like a hundred thousand, you know, people to my left. Yeah. And yeah. it looked like just like Southern Woodstock to me. I like didn't know what was going on, but quickly, you know, I'm driving and I'm driving by and I quickly, you know, it's hard not to notice one of three flags, you know, American flag, Confederate flag, Dale Earnhardt flag, Confederate flag, this and that. And, you know, I drive past something like that, someone who's born and raised in New York and New Jersey, where, like, you know, you're not flying Confederate flags around here. And I'm so inherently put off by it that it literally makes me rule out NASCAR as even an option. It doesn't even matter what is going on in the sport itself. The reason I ask that is, and the same in football, I get the hint, you know, these are major corporations, and there's obviously an economic incentive to them to toe this hard line now looking towards the potential maybe futures of their sports. Do you think NASCAR right now is willing to just let a group of fans go and take in new ones? And that's maybe the plan that they're going for? I think that that, that very much is. Yeah, I think the question is how big and how powerful is that loud group that wants to hold on to the flag. And I mean, right. that's kind of the, that's kind of the question that we have in our entire country right now sure. is that, you know, how loud or how they're very loud. We know exactly how loud they are, but how big are they? How strong are they? How much they, they, they claim to be the silent majority. They claim to have all this power. They claim to be the real Americans or in this case, the real NASCAR fans. Uh, are they, 
I mean, do they have that kind of strength? And NASCAR is betting that they don't. NASCAR is betting that whatever money that they lose short term will be recouped long term by both bringing in sponsors and by bringing right. in people like you. And, and so, yeah, let me let me throw out an invitation to both of you. If you guys are ever down here, <laughs> down south in Atlanta or Talladega, man, let's let's get to a race. Let's go tear it up because awesome. it is. I, I hate that anyone is turned off from a race from the start because it is seriously. Southern Woodstock's a great a great description. It is, it is seriously one of the best days that you will ever have is at a racetrack. Yeah, I mean, listen, you can't deny the fact that you see 100,000 people just having a great time. I mean, there's not a lot of things that could bring 100,000 people into the fold at all. Um, yeah, I, I, I know uh, my family is some car people. I definitely have an attraction to speed. And, uh, you know, I love fucking Days of Thunder. Like, I, yeah, I would love having that open door. At least I know the driver I could support now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Benny just brought up Bubba Wallace. And I think for, you know, the, the average sports fan, the person that isn't exactly tuning in each and every week, this is kind of the introduction to him. Who is he? What makes him tick? And has he always been this socially active? Or is this a recent development? He was born in Mobile, and I, I think that, you know, by the by, by dint of his skin color in a sport that doesn't have a lot of blacks, that he was always to an extent socially active. Uh, you know, he's made it clear that he is right now, and he put, says this three years ago, it's pinned to his Twitter bio, bio that I am the black driver in NASCAR. And he's he's a guy who's not particularly talented in the set. He's tremendously talented, but he's not particularly successful. I should say, let me, let me rephrase that. He's very, very talented. You have to be to stick at this level, but he hasn't been very successful in the sense that he's kind of like, you know, on the outside of the playoffs most of the time, but that's still, he's still a really, really strong driver and he, and he deserves what he has. That's important to note. He deserves what he's got. He's not there because of his skin color or any kind of affirmative action nonsense. He's driven his way to that job, but he hasn't had the level of success that some other drivers have. But I think that, that that's not necessarily the point. He feels comfortable enough now to be able to speak out. And, he, and he's a funny guy. I mean, he's on, he's on uh, pretty much every social media outlet that you can, that you can think of. He's, he's hanging out with all the other NASCAR drivers. Everybody seems to like him. There is, there's, he's part of the fraternity there. He's, he's been accepted and he's part of the group. And uh, I think that's a big reason why, um, you know, as we're recording this, they, they just had a big – uh, seen on, on pit road, excuse me, where right. all the drivers banded behind him and stood there behind him in support of him. And that's, that, that's a testament, not just to what he's saying, but who he is as a person. That's a very powerful image that we saw today for sure. Right. Um, I, I was wondering, you know, I did a little research on just sort of what NASCAR was up to in the mid to late sixties, you know, during the civil rights movement, when this had happened before, and I couldn't help but notice, you know, the, uh, early president or commissioner Bill France had partnered with George Wallace. Yes. And George Wallace was, you know, going around in Darlington and, and actually had a lot to do with Talladega even being built um, in the relationship there. And that his son uh, is, is now the current president or commissioner of NASCAR. Is that right? That's Bill a little French. bit further down the line than that. Yeah. Okay. But, but right. So, so those ties obviously run deep you know, to the top of NASCAR, um, like who, who's currently running NASCAR and making these decisions and, and uh, do any changes need to be made at the top to, to see this all through? 
I think that the, the significance, the France family is still very involved in NASCAR, but not to that kind of uh, big Bill France, the guy that organized it. He was a, he was a dude who, who ruled with an iron fist. There was a driver's strike at Talladega back in 1969 where the drivers said, this, this track is too big. It's too scary. And he just said, fine, get the hell out of there. And he brought in a bunch of scab drivers and, and, okay. and ran a race with them. He, he ruled the sport the way that he wanted it run. Uh, it, it, it wasn't like a series of franchises. It was him no. saying, this is how we're going to do it. If you don't want to drive with us, get the hell out. Um, NASCAR is a lot more egalitarian now, a lot more progressive in the, not necessarily in the political sense, but in the sense of looking at more than just what benefits the France family. And I think that one of the key elements of that is the way that Current NASCAR president Steve Phelps has been addressing this particular news controversy where he's been, he said he called it heinous. He said it's outrageous. Uh, and he, we're going to we're going to eliminate, eliminate whoever did this from the sport. I mean, this is not a, an approach that NASCAR would have taken in the past. They would have said, well, you know, we 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 really don't want to see this kind of thing in our sport. Right. There's no place for it in our sport. They would have had some kind of mealy mouth. A few bad apples. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they came at it hard this time. And I think that they're to be commended for that. So yeah, there are changing attitudes and they realize it because they're going to die out. You know, the old ways were not working anymore. Last one for me here with the FBI now getting involved. What do you think that means for NASCAR? Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> It's, it's fascinating that, that there's a NASCAR race going on at the same time there's an FBI investigation happening. I mean, it's, wow. it's just fascinating to me. Um, I don't know. I mean, there, there, are, there are only a very limited number of people that can get into the track there. Uh, and, and they're obviously reviewing cameras. They're reviewing everything that's, that's, that's happening uh, in the sense of who, who was there and who wasn't there and who had the ability to be there. And so... Yeah, I would imagine that things are going to get very uncomfortable for some people in the NASCAR garage staff who were in that area. And, you know, it's unfortunate if you if you get swept up in it and you're innocent. But uh, if, if somebody did this either as, a, as an intimidation or as just a really, really stupid prank that went really wrong, you know, it doesn't matter. NASCAR's got to get in there and figure out what uh, what the root of this is. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think something like that you know, using, using that as even, um, in the guise of a prank is part of the problem. It's not a yeah. prank when you yeah. hang a noose over a black man's car. That's, it's beyond you're, a prank. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And, and I've had people, I wrote the column today and, and I had a lot of people blow, come back at me and say, you know, what's you're, you're blaming everybody for this one incident. And it's like, no, it's, you could, you could, I could have written this column yeah. without this incident even being mentioned. Right. This is a this is a 70 year process. So this yeah. was kind of the, the the final inciting incident for me to write the column. Yeah, I can't wait for the have a sense of humor crowd to, to pull <laughs> out of this one. Um, definitely gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so get a little lighter. Since I have you on the line, a question <laughs> yeah. I've needed asked so many times. I'm a big fan of Talladega Nights the story of Ricky Bobby. <laughs> and, and I always wondered, I'm like, all right, my perspective is obviously from here. You know, I enjoy kind of the fact that they're poking fun at certain aspects of it. Yeah. Um, but also it seems like the racing and the car scenes seem pretty legit to me. How is that movie actually filmed or excuse me, actually viewed by NASCAR fans? NASCAR loves it. I mean, there are, you know, there okay. were a number of NASCAR drivers that participated in it. I mean, right. You know, it's obviously a little bit over the top, but of course, yeah. NASCAR, that, that's that's a credit to the sport that they were able to laugh at themselves. I mean, you know, sure. tell me if I'm wrong, that, that that dining room scene when they're given the blessing. I mean, that's seriously one of the funniest scenes in the yeah, history ever, ever. Of, of American cinema. That's and right. 
Dude, that's exactly what it's like when you when you see these guys making their their interviews after the race. You know, I want to thank the boys at shop with uh, Coca Cola and Pens yeah, Oil, okay. and, and they're making sure to throw out everything. And it was it was dead on. So I think anybody who has a sense of humor is is cool with it. Good, that's funny. That's good to know. But see, some things can can break down walls. And the Ricky Bobby, <laughs> maybe it. Um, exactly. The last thing I wanted to get into is like I know you're a big Braves fan. Yes. And you know, really nice young team last year. Added uh, Marcella Zuna. Added a couple pieces to the bullpen. You know, already had these budding stars in Acuna and out. You know, um, Albie. I, I can't pronounce Albie, it. Albie. Yeah. Albie and then yeah. uh, you know Freeman coming into his uh, power prime. You know, like 30, 31 year old seasons. So you must be disappointed to lose this particular season. Um, if it happens that way, yeah. how would you like to see the, um, the MLB play out right now? Do you think they should still try? And, and what do you think's the, the best thing that, or the closest thing that's going to make that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm wearing the Atlanta United yeah. shirt here and, and I'm an Atlanta guy. So between the, the Braves and, and 28 to three of the Falcons, I'm just used to getting kicked in the nuts as a sports sure. fan, just constantly. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm not exactly surprised to see, it, but it is a shame to have that, that, that moment of the Braves where they seem like they're on the right track to, to be taken away. I don't know. I mean, baseball, whereas NASCAR is trying to build the sport back up, baseball just appears bound and determined to, to kill itself. Yeah. Certainly for different reasons, but, but for financial reasons, right. there's just, there are so many baseball owners who are willing to say, nah, screw it. We're not going to play this year. We're going to lose too much money. And, and, I would love to see anything. I think that just for one year, like a 60-game season in baseball would be badass, man. Great. Just, just yeah. Game one, there's no there's no slack games. You just go every single game matters. I think that would be tremendous fun to watch. Yeah, me too. I'm hoping to see it. Are you a Mets guy, a Yankees guy? Where are you, where's your allegiance? I'm a lifelong, lifelong Yankees guy. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just talking earlier, though, that if George Steinbrenner had made it to this era – I might have had to switch to the Mets by now. <laughs> you know, yeah. might have had some problems culturally in the last few years. No, yeah, this so this sure. is not George's uh, era. That's definitely true. No, I have a feeling that him and Donnie used to hang out in some gold rooms before. <laughs> they, I'm sure they were friends. That, ne- that old New York elite that somehow half this country doesn't know exists and think that that guy's working class, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's that. <laughs> That's always a mystery to me how he can rail against the elites with with gold toilets. But hey, yeah. you know, <laughs> my family is from much, much much lower buildings in New York, getting <laughs> getting looked down upon by those folks. So I certainly don't see it that way. <laughs> I got one last one for you, since you're a Atlanta guy. Kind of take me because I mean I've worked in and around soccer. What's happening? Atlanta with United has been incredible. What do you think that cultural shift has been? And would you say that, I mean, they may not be as big as the Falcons, but they may be like, if the Falcons are 1A, they may be 1B, right? That, I was at the championship, and I mean, I'm not kidding. That was one of the most riveting sporting events I've ever been in of of any sport because you had the the entire Mercedes-Benz Stadium was sold out. You had... uh, 65, 70,000 fans wow. all cheering. They were into this. You know, I had people from out, out of state saying, it's soccer? And, and yeah. it's, you can't believe it until you see it. I had heard 
a statistic from the Falcons that there was only a 3% overlap in season ticket holders for the Falcons and season ticket for the United. I'm not quite sure about that, but obviously the United skews very much younger Mm. and it's a new, it's a new fan base. It's a fun fan base. It's a great environment. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a, again, it's, it's another tragedy that we lost it, but Mm. it's something that, that if you have not experienced it, it, you'll come away with with a renewed, renewed appreciation for it. Mm. Now it looks like you guys are the New York Yankees of the MLS. <laughs> <laughs> For now. We got, we got another 27 years. Or 27 <laughs> David Beckham may have something to say about that. But uh, do you have anything coming up that you'd like to promote? When are you going to get back out on the road and start covering things again? Boy, I hope so, man. I mean, there's just nothing to cover. Yeah. I, I uh, you know, I'm doing a, I'm doing a lot more news now, which mm. is, is uh, fascinating because you know, in the South, there's obviously all kinds of uh, news breaking, in, especially in Atlanta. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just love going to events, talking to people, getting out there. Hopefully we'll have uh, something to, to go to. But, yeah, writing every day at, at Yahoo and, and keeping busy that way. When we get in contact with the show, you can email us at vtuneuppodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us at vtuneuphq on Twitter and Instagram. Plenty of good videos and all that stuff coming your way. You can follow the big man himself, Benny Horowitz1, on Twitter. Number one in your mind, number one in your hearts, number one on Twitter. And I love how since we've added the video component, this has turned into his own, like, Samuel Sosa in the clubhouse and 98 thing going on there. I am at Denny underscore Gallagher on Twitter as well. You can hit me up. Benny, you got anything else? Yeah, I'd love to hear that Talladega Nights is a universally loved <laughs> film. It's always made me so nervous. Oh. We are all Jean Girard, you know? <laughs> But I'd like the same as usual. This uh, struggle's not over. Everyone stay vigilant, stay focused, and everybody love everybody, please. Big thanks to Jay Busby of Yahoo for hopping on the show. And kids, stay off Newark Avenue here in Jersey City. It's dangerous. This is cool. <laughs> this has been the tune-up.